All right, everyone, welcome to another episode of the Twimble AI podcast. I am your host, Sam Charrington, and today I'm joined by Vinod Prapakaran. Vinod is a senior research scientist at Google Research. Vinod, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sam. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm looking forward to digging into our conversation. We'll be talking about some of your research, which looks at both the way that AI impacts social disparities, but also how AI can be used to study social disparities. To get us started with that, I'd love to have you share a little bit about your background and how you came to work in the field. Absolutely. So yeah, I come from a more traditional computer science background, like my PhD is in uh, computer science, where I worked on sort of more work, uh, research at the intersection of natural language processing and social sciences or society. That's where I kind of started. So I come from a more kind of technical background in that sense. But over time, I've sort of got to this place where researching at the intersection of AI in general and society, and where I kind of have two different research profiles. One is where I use AI or NLP or machine learning technologies to sort of look at societal disparities, but use them as tools to look at societal disparities. And that's the kind of work that I was doing mostly in the PhD work, as well as afterwards in the, as a postdoc at Stanford. Afterwards, in the last three or four years at uh, Google, as a research scientist, I've been mostly looking at how social disparities influence these tools or how these social disparities are captured, reflected, and maybe even propagated or amplified through these machine learning and natural language processing tools. So it's kind of looking at both directions of this intersection. That's a high-level summary of how I'll sort of characterize my research. And you referenced some of the work you were doing for your PhD. What are some examples of the way that you use AI and NLP to look at social or societal disparities? Yeah. So, I mean, some of the work was looking at how workplace interactions, how social power manifests in like workplace interactions. That was my PhD work. So looking at email conversations at a workplace and looking at just by looking at the language used and the structure of these conversations, can you tell who is the superior or who is the subordinates in that conversation? Mm. Like how does power manifest in how people interact with one another? So that was my kind of PhD research thesis topic. That sort of got me into this work, which is kind of, I'm really excited about, continue to be excited about that work is I don't actively work on it, but right now that was where we used these NLP tools to look at racial disparities in police community interactions. This is work I did as a postdoc at Stanford with a bunch of amazing researchers there in collaboration with social psychologists and uh, linguists and computer scientists, where we had access to body camera videos of about one year worth of data from the Oakland Police Department. So it was in collaboration with the police department. And okay. we used the NLP tools to sort of look through this lot of data. This Usually this data is looked at as something goes wrong. It's looked at as evidence, yeah. whereas we were kind of demonstrating that it could be used as like data to learn from and understand what is going wrong potentially in the department uh, in that particular city. So yeah, we okay. used NLP tools to sort of look at things like the level of respect, the level of politeness, where the conversations are structured when police officers stop community members for traffic stops, for instance. So presumably the body camera videos were transcribed and that's what you applied NLP tools to? 
Yes. So the first paper that came out of that work, like we did look at the transcribed data, like we had manually transcribed and looked at signals for politeness and respect and so on. But there's also work on looking at the audio signals, like the prosody. I, I was not actively involved in it, but the, the kind of frequency and pitch and all those factors okay. might be signals that... So this is a huge project with so many people looking at interesting signals there. I also had some work where we are actually looking at the structure of these conversations, where police officers or when did the police officers like give the reason for the stop, right? Like when you stop someone, mm-hmm. do you start by saying, hey, I'm stopping you for this and this reason, where is your driver's license and registration versus basically stopping someone and saying like, hey, give me your life, a license and registration and then telling. Yeah. So that sets the conversation in a very different kind of path. And that also we empirically were able to analyze and look at these differences in this kind of subtle ways subtle ways in which like conversations can be different and what how that can affect like the later parts of the conversation. So this is ongoing work. The researchers at Stanford continue to work on this. And I mm-hmm. work on like, I kind of wrapping up, it's been like four years now, but <laughs> some of the work okay. I'm still involved in. So there's like some work that's going to be coming out from that in the near future, hopefully. But yeah, that's an example of a place where these AI tools are used to sort of look at social disparities. I'm curious how much of the social science side of this work you were involved in or kind of got into, or were you collaborating with social scientists and working on the more machine learning technical sides of it? Absolutely. Yeah, I love this question because it's something that 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 particular project was such a learning experience for me to sort of having deeper collaborations with social scientists to and also like having that deep respect for each disciplines, like engaging with the Mm -hmm. social scientists. It was a very close collaboration. To answer your question, it was a very close collaboration. We had weekly meetings and it was not like a typical computer science project that I have been part of prior to that. You get this data from somewhere And then you go into your lab and like, you know, go through, (laughs) munch through the numbers and try to come up with some results and then put it in a paper. But this was a very involved collaboration with social scientists, but also with the police department and communities. I didn't actively involve Mm. with and interact with the communities, they say, but, you know, our collaborators did have community workshops and stuff. But I did go to the police precinct and talk to the police department, police chief and sort of understood the context of this data. And I even went on uh, ride alongs to sort of see how these conversations conversations happen in reality. I mean, that really changed or shapes the way I kind of look at this data. It's no longer just ones and zeros. It actually brings a lot more meaning to like the data that we are working with. And to answer your question about the disciplinary collaboration also, as I said, we had weekly uh, meetings and we had like multiple papers. I was working with social psychology PhD students and we were in another podcast recently, me and another social science colleague of one of these papers about like how interdisciplinarity works in these kind of collaborations, right? Like I said, I think in that Mm, particular mm -hmm. project, one thing that we both mentioned was that there was a deep respect for these disciplines rather than like the computer scientists coming and taking away the data and going and doing magic. Like it was not that. We were very actively involved in (laughs) framing the research questions, how we ask the research questions, how we interpret the results, all of that was like in deep collaboration. Yeah. Awesome. 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 And so how did the work that you were doing previously kind of take you to the more recent work? So I think the work that I was doing at Stanford, especially in this particular context, kind of got me a lot more aware of the justice angle of the social science work, you know, the disparities and human angle to it. And it was around the time that 
there was conversations around fairness and bias in machine learning models that was just beginning in 2015, 16, 17 period. So I was in that, I just happened to be in that space where I was already working on understanding social disparities. And this is an important or, or like a really cool sort of way of like looking in the other direction. How does these disparities get into or get captured into these machine learning models? And it wasn't a really pivot because and I still I still work on like social science kind of work. That realization is like how I got into the Google research job that I'm where I am right now, where kind of like the focus at that time was on sort of understanding how these disparities get captured in machine learning models. And that was the transition because I was already working in that space in the other direction. And yeah. since joining Google, most of my Google work, as I said, have been on the other direction where looking at how disparities in data kind of get captured in these models. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And clearly one key place where some of those disparities will get introduced into models is through the that human interface, which is data labeling. Yeah. And your more recent work is kind of focused on that in particular. Can you introduce us to your 2021 paper, the issues aggregating human labels? What was the kind of the broad set of issues that you were exploring there. Absolutely. So I think, yeah, there's a lot of work within the machine learning NLP field in the last few years, looking at various sources of biases, various sources through which like, you know, biases get creeped into the models. It could be coming through data. It could be coming through the humans who are building these models and their perspectives or limited perspectives about society. But in this particular, so I was always curious about how diverse perspectives in data, be it like data, be it in people who are building these models, how does like diverse perspectives get captured in this pipeline, right? You know, there's not always just like one single answer. I mean, we live in a world of pluralistic uh, world with so many value systems. If you think about across the world, there's no one single mm -hmm. answer for many of these like questions and ethics and fairness. What is fair for me may not be what is fair for someone in a different cultural context and uh, having a different cultural history. So that motivates my current work largely. Most of my research currently is in that kind of motivated from that question of how do we different perspectives or disagreements between what is right and wrong gets captured in these kind of interventions. Even when like we intervene on making things fairer, how do we do that in a more pluralistic way? That's where this particular paper, work on this particular paper that you referenced came about. And so we had a paper in 2021 where we looked at this one core thing, as you said, data labeling, which becomes like a, such a core thing for the machine learning pipeline, where you actually have human raters annotate, be it like images or text content, whatever construct that you're trying to model. In cases mm -hmm. where like, you know, whether labeling, whether something is a cat or a dog, you can see that like most people would agree. There might be cases where people disagree whether something is a cat or not. It's a relatively more objective kind of task. But when you ask like someone, oh, is this piece of text offensive? That's you're actually leaning on a lot of sort of aspects of that individual human's sociocultural context and their lived experiences right. uh, shape how they feel or how they perceive something to be offensive or not. And so we looked at like a bunch of data sets, which kind of capture or attempts to capture such sort of subjective or relatively more subjective tasks, such as sentiment, whether this is a positive sentiment or a negative sentiment or offensiveness or hate speech. 
or emotions, whether this is something expressing happiness or sadness or that sort of. So it was like we had around three data sets, around seven or eight different tasks, these kind of social constructs that were labeled. And we looked at how people's like different annotators' perspectives matched or not. So the traditional way of dealing with like when people disagree for a long time, like, you know, in machine learning, traditionally, how you deal with it when people disagree is that you take a majority vote. You have, especially when you collect data from the crowd work kind of platforms like Mechanical Turk and all that, you, it's like relatively cheap. So you get three annotations for, or three or five or 10, depending on how much money you have. And you uh, basically get the more number of annotations, and then you take a majority vote to, to say that, like, oh, this is the majority of people in our pool agreed and stuff. We basically were questioning, what does that mean for perspectives of people with specific sociocultural backgrounds, which may be underrepresented within the annotator pool? So we had a paper, like kind of like precursor paper first, where we kind of did this analysis on these eight different tasks, annotation tasks. If you just take the majority vote and then compare or look at like how does each individual annotator agree with this majority vote because we also have the annotations that these individual voters gave like how many times their vote really made it to the majority so we looked at like that or was equal to the majority right like we looked at that for these tasks like that varied significantly across tasks and sometimes it is like all over the place some tasks like such as hate speech if i remember correctly was a lot more kind of, you know, most people agree and most people, the majority would like agreed with most people, but things like disgust is a emotion. It had very wide range of interpretations and like people disagreed on that. One thing that jumps out at me just hearing you describe that setting is in some contexts, you might be tempted to look at the degree to which a particular annotator annotates along with the majority as like a measure of quality. But here you're pointing out that it's in fact maybe a measure of diversity or different context or something Absolutely. like that. Absolutely. I think predominantly machine learning community have been using that quality kind of framing in doing the majority mm-hmm. vote. Like the reason why they do majority vote is to actually remove the noise, right? I think it probably comes from the place that machine learning researchers are like want to ensure the quality of the data that they're working with. And this is like comes across as noise. But there's even there's two different things. There's like in the context of an individual label data point, taking the majority allows you to eliminate the noise. But then from the context of the labeling operations, right? Often you're looking at the labeler over time and you're trying to understand which of the labelers are best. Yeah. Oh, so I see what you're saying. So basically, yeah. So I've seen work that also looks at like this kind of agreement with majority as a way to like assess the quality of the rater themselves. That's what you're referring to. Yeah. That's what I'm alluding to. Yeah. And and that this now the... This additional angle that, hey, it's not just quality, depending on the type of question that we're asking, it's also a measure of diverse know, different yeah. degrees of diverse perspectives. Yeah. yeah, I do want to note that, like, yeah, it, it's possible that it could be an unreliable rater. But if that rater is internally consistent with their uh, their own annotators, like if they see similar things again, if they are like, then they are actually bringing in a different perspective. That is, it's not that it is lower quality. It is just a different value system maybe is reflected in their annotations so that's what we were going after right like so this this is an ongoing project it's not just one paper would not answer all the questions so in this particular case we were basically trying to tease apart or disentangle these disagreements and sort of understand 
what factors might be contributing to why people are disagreeing, right? Like, is it just this person being unreliable, just randomly selecting things? Or is there a systematicity to the way they disagree with the majority, right? And one way in that paper that we looked at was one data set where we also had access to the social demographic characteristics of these annotators. So we looked at whether there is a difference in across like different genders. This particular data set had only uh, binary gender. No, I think there was only one non-binary gender person. So it wasn't like big enough to analyze all the different kind of gender categories, but it was a gender was one thing and then a political affiliation or ethnicity or, or, or race. And in this particular study, we show that there was no difference in gender as in like men and women had or male and female annotators had similar rates of sort of like having raters who disagreed with the majority across annotations. But it was interesting to note that when it came to race, African-American raters, annotators who identified as African-American in that data set had a significantly lower agreement with the majority rating than white American, this was a data set collected in the US, so white American, Asian American raters. So that is a problem, that is a problem. When a fra- from a fairness perspective, when you take majority, then you're actually sidelining a particular perspective. Potentially, there is perspective that is being sidelined. And what was the particular data set? Uh, the specific data set and task? Uh, so this is a data set for determining sentiment, like positive, negative, neutral sentiment okay. labeling. I do want to note, though, that this data set was collected with the intention to study biases. So this was not a case where there was a data set mm-hmm. and someone just did majority vote and then moved on with in the in an incorrect way. This data set had the sociodemographic information in them precisely mm-hmm. because they wanted to study these. This is a data set built by Mark Diaz, my colleague, for his PhD thesis. So he now works with me. So that's how this data set had this information. Usually machine learning researchers, when they collect data, for various reasons, do not collect the social demographic information because it's a much harder to get that information. There's all sorts of risks involved with it. Yeah, so we were able to see these disagreements with the majority that differs across different social demographic kind of groups, which is even a bigger problem from a fairness perspective, because this is like a human or like a researcher's decision to sort of take, take the majority vote. And by doing that, you're actually yeah. actively sidelining certain perspectives in your data labels. So yeah, that was the work that you referenced. And then we had a follow-up paper that I can talk about where we kind of look at like how we can sort of deal with that, how we can constructively sort of deal with this diverse perspectives. Let's dig into that second paper. You've identified this challenge and then the second paper wanted to propose some potential solutions. What we did there was basically rather than sort of trying to find this single ground truth for like these kind of subjective tasks, ahead of the time, ahead of training these models at the data collection stage itself, taking the majority vote. Rather than doing that, we built a, an approach or like we built kind of a machine learning pipeline where we use multitask approach where it's traditionally used for like you want to train a model for multiple tasks that are similar. So use use the same machine learning network, the network that you train, like you use the same data, but then you kind of have this final layers that are trained for specific tasks so that you have like a shared embedding or shared kind of network for the most of the part. And then you have these specific task specific parts of that network. So we looked into whether we can actually 
model separate annotators and their systematicity in which like they annotate using this sort of shared network, like a multi-annotator model so that you have all the data is being used for training. This model does not output one label. It outputs like, okay, if it was this person, that person would have said the label X. So you have like 10 different labelers, 10 different raters. You actually are modeling these 10 different perspectives in the output. And then in the output time, you can actually take the choice of like, if you still want to do majority voting, like you can do the majority voting at the output. You know, the machine learning model gave 10 outputs and you can just take the majority vote there. Or you could say that, oh, we want to take kind of outputs produced by these subset of annotators or subset of like these predictions that models like annotators from a particular background. You can imagine a scenario where like you have annotators from like different countries. Let's say there are three countries that we have annotators from India, US, and like say Germany. And then when you're actually rolling out products into these societies, like you may want to actually use the majority vote or like use the vote from a particular region or the machine learning models predictions that reflect those annotators to kind of to be used in that region. There are like so many different ways that you can use this approach. So you basically captures this like multitude of perspectives in the prediction pipeline rather than sort of like suppressing it in the beginning of the pipeline. It also gives you an additional ability to sort of know when there is uncertainty, like when there is disagreement. Because if you make a label as a majority label, if you call that, okay, this sentence is offensive, just based on like in a majority work in the beginning of the data collection itself, we would never know whether that was agreed on by 10 people or two people, and uh, it was an unanimous decision or not. Whereas in this case, you have these multiple perspectives at the prediction time. So you kind of know that, oh, multiple annotators would have disagreed on this particular case. So maybe the machine should not predict here. It should be like a human labeler from that particular sociocultural context should make a call whether this particular piece of text is offensive or not. So that's another way I could imagine this being used is that it gives you a handle on how much uncertainty is potentially here, how much diverse perspectives potentially is here for this given piece of text. It's kind of consistent with the general idea in dealing with neural networks to just give it all the data and don't try to clean it up too much because you end up hiding what you think might be noise that the network can actually find some signal in. Probably. I mean, that was definitely not the motivation for us approaching it. But I think, yeah, the current neural networks are powerful in bringing in these signals because prior to this sort of multitask architectures, which is like a two or three years, maybe a little bit longer old, prior to that, if you have like five different set, you know, annotators, you have to train like five different models. There's no way that they have a shared network and they can take signals, like even the smaller signals from each of these raters to be, you know, modeled differently or separately. That would have not been possible. So I think the current neural network ability to sort of pick up on these signals are definitely contributing to being able to sort of capture this diversity without affecting like the end performance, if that's what you're going for. Mm-hmm. And so is the model that you're creating based on the kind of the annotator signal, is this then kind of used separately as part of a downstream training task, or are you kind of embedding it end to end in the ultimate task? That's a great question. I think that there is potential to actually use this as kind of like a lead in for other downstream tasks. And so to take a step back, like, so this is ongoing work, we have not sort of rolled it out into any products or anything. This is 
I work in Google research that allows us to sort of do this foundational research without having it to be tied to any particular products. So in that sense, like we have not rolled it out yet on any of the products, but I think I envision this both as a potential kind of first step to sort of, you know, tease apart these differences, but it could also work as a sort of end-to-end scenario where like, you know, I could imagine like online platform using this model to sort of have multiple perspectives for choosing whether some particular content needs to be removed or not, for instance. Like it could help in the content moderation kind of pipeline to sort of queue content for review appropriate, like, you know, reprioritize content. And so I could see this being used in like that kind of production scenario as an end-to-end. When I say end-to-end, like I often envision like a human intervention. It's a human in the loop or machine in the loop kind of situation rather than button click and like you get the label and decide whether something is offensive or not. So there's often a human in the loop is needed. And yeah, in those settings, like I could imagine this model being useful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How did you evaluate the performance of the model? Yeah. So traditionally for this data set, like if you had built a single kind of label model, like you would basically go and evaluate the typical machine learning evaluation pipeline. Like, you know, you have like a test set and you basically look at the accuracy or precision recall and so on. We evaluated first in terms of basically if you choose to just still do the majority work, like if you had taken the majority in the beginning versus this whole pipeline of like this multitask or multi-annotator architecture, which has like these multiple perspectives, and then you take the majority vote and looking at how well this does in that evaluation. So that using the traditional pipeline to evaluate. And in that case, we were able to see that the performance was almost the same or sometimes in some data sets even better because better in the sense that because it's it's modeling each annotator kind of individually and it allows it to sort of look at internal consistency of their labels better than when you actually merge them it doesn't happen across board but in some tasks like it performed even better in that particular evaluation strategy but we also looked at sort of how well are we doing on calculating this uncertainty? We looked at, are we able to, or the sentences where the model said something is offensive and like, you know, there was a lot of disagreement in the end. In the end predictions are multiple, there's more disagreement. We compared that with how much did annotators for this particular text disagreed with each other, right? Like, so we compared when the model has this high disagreement, is that also the cases where like the annotators originally disagreed? And that turned out to be the case. There was significant correlation between sentences where the annotators disagreed and the model disagreed. And that was a lot more than traditional ways of calculating uncertainty. So this is another kind of way we evaluated. So that was not about model performance because our focus is not getting like the model performance from 72% to 74%. Like that's the typical sort of the machine learning kind of objective. And for good reason, like it is important to improve the performance. But in this work, we are we are interested in like how well we are capturing diverse perspectives and are when we are cap- having these disagreements in the predictions, are they reflecting disagreements in the actual data and which turned out to be significantly correlated. So yeah. To what degree or can you talk about the extent to which your research has helped you identify a set of principles that folks who are working with human annotators or building data collection pipelines and want to create robust models, but also want to incorporate principles of fairness into their modeling efforts? Like, what should they take away from your work? Absolutely. Yeah. So this work is ongoing. 
And there's like a lot more work that needs to be done. And this particular model that I proposed is not going to solve all the problems in the space. So we had laid out a bunch of recommendations in the first paper, actually. The traditional practice is that you take a majority vote and that's what is in the data set. Most people, when they collect labels from multiple people, they just take the majority vote and that one label is the only thing that's even in the data set. So we recommend or we argue that people should, like when people collect data, should release annotator level data, individual annotator level kind of labels so that you're not treating these annotators as interchangeable anymore. Also, where possible, like being able to collect social demographic information about annotators as much as possible to do it responsibly, being able to sort of release that along with the data set would only enrich that and sort of the downstream users of this data set could basically use that information to account for any fairness failures or any of these kind of analysis, which is very hard for us to do because most data sets in our community do not have even annotated level labels or like social demographic information. In addition, we also argued in favor of sort of documenting about the recruitment, selection, and assignment processes that are followed for this annotation kind of pipeline. So that like it gives more information about how these annotation labels, what was the diversity of traders, what social demographic kind of factors or groups were represented and what was underrepresented. So those information is super useful for the downstream user of these data sets. So on that note, I want to also give a call out to recent paper by my colleague Mark Diaz on providing a comprehensive framework for communicating these things about annotator diversity and annotator these processes through kind of a transparency artifact called crowd worksheets, which capture these kind of information. And that just got published a couple of months ago at the Fairness and Accountability and Transparency Conference. So I encourage people to check out that work as well. And I also want to call out the two papers that I discussed at length, this work led by my intern, Aida Davani, who was at USC at that time last summer. And so this is almost a year long of work after internship, like she continued as a researcher, student researcher with us. And she has now joined back as our team as a full-time researcher. So this work is an ongoing effort and one of the core themes of my research going forward. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Vinod, thanks so much for joining to share a little bit about what you've been working on. Absolutely. This was a pleasure to chat about this research, and it was lovely chatting with you, Sam. Same. Thanks, Vinod. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening, and catch you next time.